Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in week three of our seven-week sermon series on the book of Esther. Here's what we know about Esther so far. Esther is a Jewish woman living in the Persian capital, that's the name, the, by the name of Susa. The year, as events are unfolding right now, is about 480 B.C. Esther was orphaned, and her closest relative was her first cousin, Mordecai, who now is acting as her adoptive father. And just a brief summary of what's gotten us to this place, chapters 1 and 2. The king of Persia, who ruled in his empire from Ethiopia to India, got upset with his wife, the queen, when he summoned her to appear at a party, and she said no. And so because of her refusal, he has deposed her from being queen, and he's gone on a search process throughout his empire to find a new queen. Esther, a young and beautiful Jewish girl, has now become queen of the Persian Empire. She is keeping her Jewish faith, her Jewish ethnicity, a secret so far, but she is now queen of this large and vast empire. I ended last week's sermon with these words. Esther is now crowned as queen over the entire Persian Empire. How will she use these new powers and responsibilities given to her? Well, we'll have to keep reading to find out. And so I encouraged you if you were here last week, to read ahead, Esther chapter 2, verse 19 to 4, 17. That's what we're covering today. And here we are, and in these two chapters, the plot thickens quickly and the drama increases. We didn't get to read this whole section today because it's two full chapters. We only read a portion of it. But let me just retell you this story from these two chapters. Mordecai, Mordecai, uh, Esther's adoptive father, he overhears outside the, the, the royal palace uh, an assassination plot by two of the king's servants. And so Mordecai gets word to Esther, Esther gets word to the king, and the king hangs these two guys on the gallows, but that's not like hanging with a noose, this is impaling them on a large stake. <laughs> And then the plot thickens even more in chapter 3 where we meet the villain of the story, the next main character by the name of Haman, the Agagite, it says. Now, if we don't know anything about the Old Testament, this doesn't mean anything. But if you study the Old Testament, this phrase that he is an Agagite is a big deal because the Agagites were an ancient enemy of the Jewish people going all the way back to their time wandering in the wilderness. And so what we're about to see unfold is more than a personality conflict between Mordecai and Haman. It is an ancient feud that between God's people, the Jews, and these people, the Agagites. And so this is a representative feud of a much larger problem. Well, Haman becomes this very powerful guy in, in the empire, and he, by the king's command, everybody has to bow down to Haman. Well, Mordecai says, I won't do that. Haman ends up getting so upset with Mordecai that he wants Mordecai dead, but that's not enough. Instead, Mordecai goes to the king and he asks the king for permission 
to completely annihilate by genocide all Jewish people living in the entire empire. And the king says, sure, go ahead. Here's my ring to sign the documents with. So Haman and his friends, they roll the dice. They cast lots. In, in, the, in that language, they're called poor, which will come into play later on, but they cast these poor. They roll the dice to find out when should we execute all the Jewish people. And the date lands about 11 months in advance. This empire is so vast, but through their mail delivery system, they can get word out in about three to four months. So Esther and Mordecai living in the capital, they have approximately a year to get ready until they are executed. Now, Mordecai mourns this message deeply. It says he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which is a physical and public way to mourn and to pray. And so Mordecai very publicly makes known how he feels about this. And Esther sees Mordecai in his miserable state and she sends him some clothes to put on. Say, Mordecai, change your clothes. And he won't do it. He says, no, this is how I will be. And Esther, as a matter of fact, I want you now to go to the king. I've told you to keep your ethnicity a secret. Now it's time to let him know who you are and to beg for the lives of our people. Don't just think because you're queen that you're going to be spared. And after some back and forth in this, Esther finally says to Mordecai, all right, Mordecai, I want you to gather all the Jews living in the capital and, uh, and, and start fasting. That means <laughs> pray for me. Pray for me. And, and I'll gather my young women who serve me and will fast as well. Because here's the deal. If I go to the king and he hasn't summoned me, the law says that I should be put to death. However, here's the key word that Esther says. Esther speaks these words. If I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. I'm willing to put my life on the line, Esther says. If I die bringing this message, then so be it. And at that point, Mordecai goes away and does what Esther asks. He holds a fast and she does as well. Listen to those words, though, from Esther's mouth. If I perish, I perish. What a statement of faith. Esther's saying, I'm willing to put my life on the line for the God that I believe in and in order to spare the lives of other people who also believe in the same God. How bold of Esther. I was writing these words this last week, uh, sitting at my computer, and when I'm writing my sermon, a lot of times I'll be listening to music just kind of in, in the background as a form of distraction, not really paying attention to the words. But I was writing these words about how bold Esther's faith. And then in, in my ears, this song started playing on, on the playlist I was listening to, this old gospel hymn. I don't know if you know the hymn, but the, the hymn is titled, I Surrender All. And the words of the chorus go like this, I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And this is going on in my ears. I surrender all. I surrender all. As, as, I'm, as I'm writing about Esther putting her life on the line, and then I'm thinking about my own life, I'm thinking, no, I don't. No, I don't. 
My refrain is more like, I surrender some, I surrender some, only Lord when it's convenient, I surrender some. Seriously though, I mean I give financially, I I give of my time, but to surrender all? I mean I like to believe that if if, 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 if everything was being forced upon me to surrender it, that I would and that I'd hold on to my faith in Jesus Christ. I want to believe that. But to voluntarily surrender all for the sake of the gospel, I'm not sure that I do. Nor do I know that I've ever even been in a position where I've had to do that. In our gospel lesson today from Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus calling his disciples to follow after him. Four guys, two sets of brothers. Let me just reread these words for you uh, right now. It says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And Jesus called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus sees two guys. He calls them, sees two guys. He calls them. How long did they have to think about it before following after Jesus? Not long. Do you see the key word? Twice twice on here, the key word is immediately immediately. Jesus says, follow me. Immediately. They leave behind. They, they surrendered. <laughs> they surrendered their livelihoods. They surrendered their jobs. They surrendered what was familiar. They surrendered their family. And they did what? Follow Jesus. They followed Jesus. And eventually, these guys would literally surrender all when their lives, too, were taken for confessing faith in Jesus Christ. They would give it all up. Here at our church, in our Lutheran tradition, um, we teach confirmation classes to young people in 7th and 8th grade. Uh, Marcus Hoff, our director of youth and campus ministry, and I, uh, we share that responsibility. We've got a great group of about 30 students right now in 7th and 8th grade that we teach on a weekly basis Uh, teaching them about this faith that they have because we're going to give them the opportunity in just a few short months, there's going to be a number of eighth graders standing in front of you confessing boldly that they believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask them a number of questions, not necessarily about what they know, but what about they are willing to confess. And I want to share with you two of these questions that we ask in our rite of confirmation. I will ask the young people first, do you intend to live according to the word of God and in faith, word, and deed to remain true to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit even to, what? Death. (laughs) And then I'll say, if so, say, I do by the grace of God. And these young people will say, I do by the grace of God. I warn them in advance. I say, do you know what you're saying? Even to death I will cling to the good news and the word of God in Jesus Christ, even if it means my life is being threatened. You sure you want to say that? 
Because then the next question is this one. Do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? Are you willing to do this even unto death? Will you cling to Jesus Christ? If so, say, I do by the grace of God. Those are bold statements for some eighth graders to make, young adults, right? What about you? Would you how would you respond to that? Would you second-guess your confession of faith? I know that in, in my rite of confirmation, when I was a young person, we had to make this same confession, answer these same questions. And those of you who were raised in the Lutheran church, likely you did too, or maybe at some point in your life you've made a commitment to follow after Jesus even to the point of death. Awesome. But I pray that at all times, not just in the times where our lives are being threatened, that we would hold ultimately to our faith in Jesus Christ and live without fear, boldly confessing and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ until all nations hear. And why would we not? Why would we not? I've told you that I'm going to put on repeat in this series on the book of Esther the fact that we worship a God who is sovereign. That means he is a big, bold, almighty God who is in control and in charge of all things and his ways are higher than our ways. Our, his will is higher than our will. And Mordecai believes this. In our section today, we didn't read it in our Old Testament lesson today, but Mordecai has this conversation with Esther. When he's telling Esther, hey, you got to go talk to the king, and she says, I don't know, my life is going to maybe be on the line. He says back to her, Esther, I want you to go, but even if you don't go, I believe that God will provide deliverance for his people in some way, somehow. That's a big, bold statement of Mordecai. He's saying, I trust in the covenant promises of God that God will always be God and he will always deliver his people who belong to him. God will always be God and he will always deliver his people, always following through on his promises. And I believe that we should know and believe even more so than Mordecai did that God will always follow through on his promises to us for forgiveness and everlasting life. We should believe this with everything because we know Jesus. We know the extreme lengths that our God has gone to to purchase and win us back. Jesus gave up his life for us. Jesus gave up his life for us. And the sovereignty of God is most fully given to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. I tell you today, there's power in the cross of Jesus. There's power in the cross of Jesus. Those of us who believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins recognize that there's power at the cross of Jesus. But many people sadly look at the cross and they say, that's foolishness. That's foolishness. The, the cross, that's a death penalty. Criminals die on crosses. <laughs> Frankly, gods don't even die. You worship a dead god? What is this? Well, frankly, we believe <laughs> ultimately that Jesus 
is not dead. Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, our epistle lesson today, that this is the way of the world. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross, it's folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that simply means that when you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there's power in the name of Jesus. Power for those who believe. But when you don't believe, you look at the cross, you say, that just doesn't make sense. That's silly. That's silly. Jesus surrendered all. Jesus surrendered all. Literally. He gave up his life so that you could have life. And have it to the full. He gave up everything so that you could have everything now and forever. Jesus surrendered all and Jesus made a commitment. We ask our young people to make a commitment and a vow. Jesus made a commitment and a vow and a promise to you that he will always love you. That he will always forgive you. That he will always be God and you will always be his people. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I'm not sure about the fears you have in your life when it comes to standing up boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I know in talking to a lot of you that you have real fears and worries about making a public confession of faith in your neighborhoods and in your places of work. I know this because you've told me. A lot of you worry that if you speak the name of Jesus Christ to a family member or someone that you know, that somehow you're going to cause offense in that relationship. Many of you are fearful that somehow if you speak about Jesus to somebody that you know and love, that, that somehow you're going to drive them further away from Jesus than you actually would bringing them closer to Jesus. That's a fear you have. I know a lot of you are, are worried that if you speak up and, and, and proclaim the good news of Jesus in your workplace, that somebody might find out, find out and you might be disciplined, whatever that might be. Or you'll be branded as that, that bold Christian weird person. And we don't want to be branded like that. These are real fears that people have. But may I ask you today as your pastor, in light of what we've heard from Esther to be a little bit more risky for the sake of the gospel? Just think about it. Who is going to share the love of Jesus Christ with the people that you know and love if you don't do it? What are you willing to put on the line for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to conclude my message today uh, by showing you a four-minute video about a young woman named Fatima. She, was a, she used to be a Muslim uh, living in Saudi Arabia who converted to Christianity. That's how I'm going to close my message for today. But before that, just a word of announcement for next week. Uh, look ahead and read chapter 5 of Esther. That will be uh, what we cover for next week, Esther chapter 5. Again, we're going to watch this video about Fatima, a young woman who converted from, Christi or from, uh, from being a Muslim to Christianity, living in a hostile area in Saudi Arabia. And I pray that by watching and hearing her story, that you would consider your life and that you would pray that God will embolden you by the power of His Holy Spirit 
to live boldly as a Christian person, maybe even unto death. We watch this video. I remember being challenged by a girl called Fatima from Saudi Arabia. She was in her mid-twenties and living in one of the most hostile places on earth to be a Christian. She'd not always been a Christian. In fact, she started life as a Muslim. It wasn't long after this that Fatima began blogging, began getting online and writing blogs for, for her friends to read. She wanted to share her newfound excitement for God. She would do it under an alias called Rania, which translated means contented. To protect her from the multitude of insults and responses that she would get, I remember on one occasion she received the following reply and it says, you worship a foolish, crucified, cursed Lord. If I had you in my hands, I would slaughter you twice. Fatima responded with this, to those who become Christians, how you were so cruel. And the Messiah says, blessed are the persecuted. And by God, I am unto death a Christian. It wasn't long after this series of blogs that Fatima decided to tell her family that she'd become Christian. When she told them about her decision to follow Jesus, an argument broke out. And the next day, Fatima returned from a family function to find that her brother had broken into her room and was actually sitting on her laptop. This troubled her greatly because she knew that the desktop picture was a picture of the cross. Many of her writings and blogs were sitting open on her desktop. She said when she walked into her room, her brother was very angry. Fatima decided to lock herself in the room as a measure of safety. And she jumped online and she wrote a blog to her followers and it, it was simply entitled, I'm in big trouble. Over the next four hours, she asked all her followers to pray for her. Shortly after this, Fatima's brother returned to her room. He burned her face. He burned her back. He cut out her tongue. And he killed her. You know, as I think so much about her story, I, I think to myself, what's my response? I think to myself things like risk-taking Christianity. Is there such a thing because the Bible that I read, the, the Bible that I see, and the stories like Fatima, they tell me that Christianity in and of itself is defined by risk. It's easy to be a Christian in your head and all, sort of honour God with your words. But being a Christian in your heart and with your actions, that's the real deal. A, a Christian in the deepest fibre of your being. It's where faith, it comes alive and it materialises from faith into action. And your natural response to a relationship with Jesus is to express it. 
any way possible.